Okay, new podcast for the new year. We are uh, on episode 8 of Kavira's uh, Talks, I suppose. Uh, and today we are going to be talking about legacy code. Today with us we have... We have Sam, software craftsman here at Codurance, keen to talk about some legacy code. I'm Andre, I'm also a software craftsman at Codurance. Let's talk about legacy code. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris, also a software craftsman at Codurance. There's a common theme. I've been doing this for far closer to 20 years than I'd like. Spent a lot of time working with legacy code and, to be honest, probably writing it on a, more than a few occasions. Okay, and, well, you know me from before, I'm Jorge, also mumbles if you want, and actually do have as well quite a lot of experience dealing with uh, legacy code. But today I will be the one asking the question. Let's gonna start with that. Let's gonna see how you people define legacy code. I would say legacy code is code that you are afraid to touch uh, and make changes to. I'd say that it has no link, to, uh, no like temporal link. There's yeah. no link to time. Is you can have code you've written today which someone would be afraid to touch. Well, I think legacy code, it can be anything that will have to give maintenance or also something that you don't have any tests and that could be your legacy. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Sam. It's, I think it's code that you're afraid to touch because you don't understand what the consequences of any given single change would be. So we have a couple of things that uh, we'll talk about. Some of them will come right now into into place, which is what makes legacy code hard to maintain. So I start this time, should we go the other way around? Um, lots of different things, potentially. Um, a lack of comprehensive automated tests, ideally unit tests, but any kind of test automation would help. Poor design, particularly sort of, sort of high coupling, low cohesion, very difficult to predict. For example, changes you make, um, what effects they'll have, lots of side effects to make a change. Potentially sometimes technology as well, use of out-of-date libraries, frameworks, potentially languages, that kind of thing. These can all contribute. But unpredictability, I think, is the... So, like Chris said, there is a lot of things that make the code hard to maintain. So if you have a code base that don't have tests, for example, changing that will be hard because you don't know, really know what will happen. And for you to test, you will have to do manually. This will require more time, or if you have something that is really hard to understand what is happening because there is a lack of knowledge about the domain, or even the code is too complex. One question about that, with the domain, it is yeah. not a question of just the person not knowing enough rather than being an issue with the, with the code itself. Uh, I think it could be both. It's usually a combination of both. I mean, when you have legacy code that's existed a long time, it's surprising within an organization how quickly the domain knowledge kind of rots away. A surprisingly small number of people actually understand how a lot of old legacy code works, both at the technical level and at the business level. They just sort of take its behavior for granted. And everybody sort of assumes they know, but in practice you start digging into it and they don't. I think as you said, as you both said, having a comprehensive suite of automated tests, I think, can help with that because you can then kind of start to understand what should the code do. Um, I think one of the problems I've seen is the lack of kind of expressiveness within the code and the fact that it's sometimes it's just quite cryptic. And that means that just implementing changes or features. So the business say they want X, you then go to implement X and it takes you a lot longer, obviously costs them ultimately more money as well, just because the code's hard to understand. And I think Within that, there's also the fact that you can have things that are really tightly coupled and you have to try and break apart these couplings, how things might run all the way through from the database to, to the view and 
there's kind of this coupling which means that if you want to try and separate and change out some of that stuff it can be much harder to do so yeah and, that, and these things tend to compound because they're hard to break up and separate people don't they just keep piling uh, more stuff on top of it and papering over the cracks that tends to be the number one strategy for dealing with legacy code with my experience is just write more code over the top that's an oracle database yes kind of reminds me of that <laughs> uh, a few things that I have read and how they operate. Okay, so we have mentioned now already a few times lack of tests. That is one of the things that makes your code to be legacy code and uh, one of the reasons why it's difficult to maintain. How you can introduce tests into a system that doesn't have them? Well, it depends on the actual state of your system. So if you need something really fast to be done, your deadline is really short, you can start adding tests to the new things that you're adding to the system. In the Michael Feathers book, he has an example for how you can make the new code that you're writing decoupled from the old one, and you can add tests just for the new ones. And if you need uh, to test everything, which you will need. There are some ways. The first thing that you have to do is, uh, if you have any tests, are those tests good enough? If you change something in your code, are those tests going to break? Are they going to break for the right reason? There are two things, uh, now that you have mentioned the book, which we'll put a link later on, on the on the website in case you, you don't have it, which you should, because it's, it's a great book. It's really good, yeah. Um, and I said how you can introduce, well, two other things that he says on the book. Talk, it talks about two different, two things. One is uh, themes, where, uh, which is where, where you can start introducing uh, the, the test, or find that, that place where you can do it. The one is, um, I think he was the one introducing the Golden Master. Yeah, characterization tests, I think he, yes. he calls them in the book, doesn't he? So that's, um, for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically uh, writing a test that you, what you wanted to do is describe the current behavior of a system, ideally by putting in some input and getting some output, usually as text, and just comparing, so you'd be able to compare the result of that test over time. Um, it's not. It's not, test, it's not a test that's designed to prove the system works in any particular way. It's to allow you to detect changes in behavior as you make changes to the system. I think that's not bad. Have you done before characterization tests? Yes, quite recently actually. One thing I find though is, if you say if you're changing a certain area of the code and you're, maybe you write like a unit test for some piece of code that you're changing, you still need that kind of safety net of an acceptance test or whatever. Like, like what, ultimately, what does this piece of code I'm changing contribute to in the wider kind of scheme of things? And I think without that, you can introduce tests and it, it's good from the perspective of you can test that that area of code is working, but I think you still need the wider acceptance test. So, I mean, that can be one strategy that you have an acceptance test. The first thing you do is you have the acceptance test, like what should the observable behavior of the system sh should be? And then you can kind of work your way in as you're in certain areas. Yeah, I don't answer the question or not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do for now. That's it. Uh, so, what examples can you put of characterization tests that you have done in the past? The most recent example I can think of was uh, testing a, a REST API, not particularly a great one. So we were, to a certain extent, testing um, so requests going in, requests coming out. 
and comparing the uh, the JSON documents that basically came out and seeing how they changed when we made uh, changes to the internal system. It represented quite a complex um, quite a complex object graph internally. Um, it was just flattened out into JSON, so we could use sort of um, I think it's called approval tests. Is that the name of the framework? There's the it's on both .NET and Java, which basically allows you to easily compare text output using a, a diff tool. So every time we made a change that affected the outcome of a test, you could see the result in a diff and decide if it was a change you wanted or a change you didn't want. So that's the most recent example of doing that. Okay. What about you, Andre? Well, uh, the last time that I had to do characterization tests was for a CSV parser. We were having some problems with some CSV that the customer sent, and it didn't have any tests. So I started to have to test for the basic functionality of parsing CSVs and to, to test uh, the edge cases like values with a comma that was a text with comma and things like that and Unicode characters. Okay. Where do you find the, how do you find the things on the code? How do you know where you kind of start introducing code uh, tests at a lower level? That what you have right now. Well, a thing is something that you can control the behavior without changing the, your code that you are going to test. So, for example, if you are working with a object-oriented language, maybe a method that you can override can be a thing, or some class that you are getting has a parameter it can be a scene because you can change the behavior behind that class without changing the code that you are testing. I actually had one like that recently where we had a static method which um, was doing some kind of like encryption and we had no control over that. So we had to effectively introduce a seam and we did, as you said, we have a kind of, a, well, within Java, within Java, we have like a protected method which mm. basically just wraps the call to the static method. And within our test, we can have control over it and override what that value returns. So we, in our test, we have some element of control over this thing, which we previously didn't and was kind of untestable. So yeah, we did that. So on, on this case, you didn't have control of the static. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So we didn't have any control of it. It wasn't. It wasn't like anything. It wasn't like injected as a dependency. It was just a static call in the code, mm. and we had to find a way to be able to test this, test this thing. Question about this: In case you have done it before. And I think maybe this introduced in the book is it is only with the statics that you have of which you have control is hiding behind the static an actual implementation or is it the way around? And then you put no, you play, you create a creating an instance object to wrap a, a yeah. static one and then yeah mm -hmm. yeah so is that, that's what you are describing over here or it was slightly different. So slightly different. So yeah. So that was that was one option, which is to uh, yeah, effectively create an object that wraps the behavior, which you know you might do for say like a clock or something, something that you ordinarily can't control. You might create something that wraps it. So mm -hmm. what we did was we um, had a, we introduced a method into the class that we were trying to test the behavior of, but when it was a protected one, so then we could override it in our tests to basically it was just a call through to the static. So we had some element of control. So it wasn't quite that, but. That would have been an equally. So in your test, you would create a class that would extend from that one that yes. you wanted to test, and then we override and override just for the purpose of testing. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And in an ideal world, we would have that as a kind of injected as a you know collaborator because if that's what it was, is it was a collaborator. Mm. But 
So that, that's kind of the next step once you get things, the situation under control, isn't it? You want to jump straight to doing that yeah. because you, if you start breaking up, breaking those kind of dependencies without having the control the tests give you, you've got there's a risk of all kinds of undefined behaviour. Yeah, especially or unpredictable behaviour. Yeah, especially if you're using a framework as well that maybe does the uh, injection for you as well. Then that's going to maybe a consideration um, that might do some magic that maybe. You don't want to deal with that magic at this point. <laughs> it's not, not going to talk about uh, injection frameworks. Uh, <laughs> not a fun. <laughs> Maybe a topic for another tour. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so, what about uh, other, other kind of scenes that we can find in the code? I think my favorite one from the book, just because of how ingenious it is, I've never done it, was the idea of using the linker as a scene and changing the linker in like C to swap in implementations of classes at compile time. It's such an evil solution to a hard problem. I mean, I've never had to do it, uh, thank God. But I really liked it as a as a sort of hacker's approach to doing this kind of thing. I thought it was a really good idea. I haven't done any kind of unit testing on C++. Neither have I. Uh, or, or C. When I, when I did a bit of those languages, I have never heard about unit testing. So I know that there are, now there are frameworks, but I wouldn't want to, to try it. <laughs> Okay, another one that it doesn't get described in the book because it's very specific. And personally, I, w I want to see what do you think about it because I have, I have seen in the past both with Java and Caesar and with this, these two languages because only because of the refactoring tools are quite good. And sometimes I have big methods that are trying to do a to a test around the method, it becomes quite complicated. So, because it basically, it basically is like a characterization test. If the method is like 1,000, 2,000 lines long, well, it is way too much happening within the method yeah. to actually be able to control everything and be able to set up everything. So, one thing that I have used in the past, and only on C -Sharp and, and Java again, because of the refactoring tools, is just use the Reta factoring tools, extract the code, and then on the extracted code, start adding tests. Yeah, I've done that kind of thing in the past as well. I mean, that's the advantage you get. That's one of the good things about working both the Java and the .NET ecosystems. IDE, IDE tooling and things like automated refactoring tools can really save your bacon by transforming code in such a way that it should, should still work. There, there's no, no chance of the sort of typos or mistakes you get doing that kind of stuff manually. Those automatic transforms can definitely dig you out of a hole. We, we are talking about adding finding those things, to add those tests, and maybe being able to either start code or have this characterization test. And this this is going to be a relatively big topic because, I mean, from what I have seen always, people talking about it, is how, how do we know that the tests are good enough for what we are doing? If, I, if, if it's a system that I haven't developed from the beginning, I don't have control of, you have said earlier at, at the beginning, it, it is you know really what is happening. You don't know all the possible consequences of the things that you are doing. How do I know that the tests that I have done are going to cover the, the, the behavior or the expected behavior of the system? There's a couple of answers to that, I guess. It's not that easy. I would say you can pretty much be sure that the tests you've written probably aren't enough in, in most old legacy systems. Um, I do think, especially if you're dealing with an old system as opposed to a fairly recently written legacy code, I think this has to go hand in hand with a lot of domain exploration or re-exploration to, to try and learn what it's supposed to be doing as well. If you're talking about um, sort of technical options for helping, mutation testing is a good tool. At least that gives you an idea of the, 
sort of quality of the tests you've got. Um, if you're able to run um, various kinds of mutations on your code and you still find lots of passing tests. Problem. Can you explain what are mutation tests? Yes. Because <laughs> I need to do it now. Um, okay, so uh, mutation testing. Um, it can be done in a manual fashion or an automated fashion. We'll talk about automation, uh, automated tools for it, I guess, because that's simpler. They basically go through your code and provide a num and perform a number of transformations, usually on the compiled code or the object code, uh, sorry, the um, intermediate language code with Java or C Sharp. Mm -hmm. You can usually choose what mutations are applied, but they do things like um, flip conditional operators, um, introduce off by one errors and that kind of thing. Basically, they perform lots of small transformations in your code that introduce subtle errors. And then you can run your test suite again. And in theory, if your test suite is good, many of those should break because of all the errors introduced by these transformations. I can't think of too many more off the top of my head. Um, it's very common to change like um, iterators and uh, conditional comparisons, switch cases, those kind of things. Okay, so we are, we are talking about you do a change in the code to break the test. Yeah, so you, you do a control transformation in your production code to break it in order to test that your tests are effective. Hmm. So that the naivest example is to go through all your production code and change less than operators to greater than operators and then run your unit tests. And the idea of doing this with automated tools is obviously that you don't accidentally leave all those defects in there. It's, it's interesting because uh, before I heard about the idea of mutation tests, I was doing it manually. Sometimes I write this, oh, this, this is passing, that's strange. Let's gonna try to break it. Let's gonna change something on my code and, uh, and see, oh yeah, yeah, now no, it breaks. Okay, fine. It's gonna put it, it's gonna put the code back how it was and how you done it that before. Yep, definitely. I think one thing that's really interesting that, that, that Chris said was about kind of the re-exploration. Because often, like, I mean, I had it before where we were asked to basically take kind of a legacy system and kind of recreate it in a more modern tech stack, but don't ask, but that, that's what we had to do. So um, we had like some documentation and we had like the real thing. So we, between the two, we could kind of figure out what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but ultimately the real test was, you know, given that we integrate with system X, does it, does, you know, does it work? That, that was the real test. And so I guess in answer to your question about what, when is testing enough, we can add all the testing we want, but really the integration point between the two systems was the real test because maybe maybe we didn't maybe we didn't use the system uh, that's currently there enough to get a good idea about what it did and then maybe the documentation didn't tell us but th th there's one interesting point that when you when you do this and you will look at legacy code you might find behavior that makes you question the validity so it might do something and then you're like hmm should it do that and so then you need to approach like a domain expert if there's one available and say, would you expect this to happen? And then actually what you find is that in the process of working with the legacy code, you can tidy up and you can get rid of this dead branch or something that's just not a valid thing to do, something that was added, but because there was no test to kind of document what ultimately you know the client wanted, then yeah, I don't know. <laughs> hey, so, so we are talking about uh, how the final you tests are good enough. Um, what about, because one of the issues that you are going to have with legacy code is that it's, it is relatively easy to, um, how can I say it? It doesn't to be relatively brittle, the, the code itself, which, and then once you start changing things and adding things into, into your code, then you, you, your tests themselves, they become brittle themselves uh, because Especially at the beginning, you start introducing. Uh, you need to set up so many things in advance for the for the test to run, and then you change. You start adding dependencies or removing dependencies. You start injecting stuff that before you didn't have to inject. Uh, 
dealing with global variables or the stuff like that, like statics, as you mentioned. How we can deal with that? So I have a view on this that your test code is in effect a client of your production code. Uh-huh. So you know whether you're developing a library or whatever, it's 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 more much more evident when you have things like libraries because there are clients of your code um, outside of you know the realm of your code base. And so then I I perfectly see it natural that if you make a change to your production code that a client of your code, I mean if it's a library, you'd hope that to introduce a new version, a breaking change, or whatever. But I think I think it can be quite hard to get around because you're ultimately changing how it looks and how people might interact with mm-hmm. your code. And so then because the tests are interacting with your code, it's natural that maybe it changes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's my view. I think it's a hard one. What do you think, Andre? Well, I agree with Sans. Like, when you start to add tests to your code and you change your code to be more testable, this is start to become more part more and more of your code base. If you think that those changes are needed for you because it will, in the future, might give you uh, more speed to work with the code base, give you like a safety net to make changes, maybe those changes that you are going to do are acceptable mm-hmm. to having your code. And um, Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think there's anything you can do about it in in a sense, I think it's just a consequence of what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to get untested code under test, to do that, you're trying to make as few changes to your production code as possible. And that's going to result in tests that are brittle and are closely coupled to the current implementation of whatever it is you're testing. And I think once you get to that point, that's when you, you need to be like iteratively refactoring both your tests and your production code. And you're looking to introduce new abstractions such that um, you can reduce that that coupling between the tests and production code. I don't think it's any different to doing um, sort of regular TDD in the sen- in that sense. It's just that you're just starting from a much worse place. So it's just comparatively more effort and more iterations of production code, refactoring tests, production code, introducing abstraction, introducing new tests. So it's just it's a very similar process. It's just more. Just like to add as well about the kind of the brittle tests is that sometimes like you may have legacy code and maybe the people have added some tests but that those tests are maybe flaky or or failing and no one's fixed them which is obviously not the right attitude but what you can end up with is maybe where you have a suite of tests where they're they, they fail like, regularly and so then yes then it's like a people problem of people have then been conditioned to ignore the build breaking and not like jumping on it and trying to fix why why is this thing broken um so that that can be another factor as well is, is the that, that, that's why I didn't quite go when we asked what legacy code was back uh, at the start. I think the definition in Michael Feather's book is any code that doesn't have tests. And so I don't quite buy into that because most of the legacy code I've worked with does have some tests. They're nowhere near comprehensive and they're frequently um, just enough to provide a very false sense of security. Yeah. Or they're completely wrong and lead you in completely you know, in the wrong direction. So that's why I didn't quite go for that definition. In my experience, code completely without tests is pretty rare. It's usually that the tests are, like you say, fragile, um, what's the word, non-deterministic, or they're just really trivial and providing a false sense of security. No, no, non-deterministic, like the, well, we have a colleague, but I have had the same issue, kind of similar, uh, before as well, which uh, created some tests that they will only pass in the morning. If the tests were running in the afternoon, they were failing. Um, I did see a, a coding test actually for a, a company that they, they give out to potential hires and it actually contained some code you had to put under test that had that kind of bug in it that it would only, that it would fail after Friday afternoon because it was dealing with times and dates. It was quite good. 
So the unit test they had would pass until they got to Friday afternoon. It was, it was a subtle thing to catch people out. I thought that was quite good. Yes, in time to leave for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, so the moral of the story is do a half day on Friday, I guess. <laughs> if we have, this is a question, by the way. Uh, so if we have tests, but they're not good enough, they, could they cause a false sensation of safety to, for you to change your code? If, if you're not familiar with the system, definitely. People who are more familiar with it will be aware that they're, they're not a real safety net after a while because they'll still be sh shipping bugs and causing problems despite the test cases. But yeah, if you're, not, um, if you're new to it, yeah, they can definitely be a false sense of security. We'll be talking a bit uh, about uh, people and how the, the, the set of tests affects them uh, mentally later on. But the point, if you're new to a project, is there any way that you can, other than talking with people that have been there for longer, is there any way that we can, as a new person, to assert the validity of those tests? Do you mean, by validity, do you mean that they're testing the right thing? Yeah, that, that, that you can rely on those tests actually representing what they are supposed to be representing, that is that the code is behaving how it is expected to be beha behaving. So if I, if I go and change and the test breaks, I know that it is because, well, first, the, the fact that it actually breaks. If I change my code, it breaks, uh, then I know that at least the code, the, the, the test is dealing with that code. But is, is, is there any way you, you go to a project and it has 300 tests and you run and all of them pass, hey, mar marvelous. But are those 300 tests, is there any way for you to I, I don't think there's a bulletproof way to do that. I mean, there are, there are a couple of heuristics you can use. I'm thinking of an example where I was working on some integration tests and they had what appeared to be comprehensive test suite for a particular API. But if you dug in closely to the assertions, they had complicated setups and interactions. But if you look very closely at the assertions, all they were doing were asserting this API was returning 200 HTTP 200 success codes. And that was it. Yeah. So the actual content of what was coming back could have been anything. It could have been null and it would still pass. So yeah, obviously read the tests, look for that kind of thing. Um, it's, not, it's, not a good, it's not a good way of working out if they're testing the right thing. But if you're working somewhere that has continuous integration or um, continuous deployment, and I really hope you are, um, then looking through the history of tests, most uh, CI tools will track test uh, the history of a test suite, how fragile they are, when the last time they broke they are. Mm. If you page through the last few weeks of that and it's mostly orange and red, then you're you're in trouble. <laughs> I, th I think it is very difficult to, to test the va the validity of like to, to, to assert that the tests are valid because ultimately someone is going to ask for the software to be built for a reason and for it to behave in a certain way and you can have you know acceptance tests you can have them written uh, in like kind of like a BDD more like syntax but ultimately you aren't going to know unless you speak to the person that wanted it and even then they may forget what they asked for like they may not even be there anymore ex exactly so I think it's very hard to assert that it, it's kind of they've built the right thing and it's behaving as it should do which, which is the thing where you, you come back to characterization tests you probably can't assert that it's doing the right thing but you can at least start asserting that the behavior, its behavior is consistent and when you make changes the behavior stays the same because mm -hmm. it's a horrible thing to say but if you've got a production system and it's out there working for some value of working mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter whether it's doing what the person who, who specified it intended it to do the point is this is its behavior now and this and its current behavior has created a set of expectations among the people who use it so it's probably more important that you don't violate their current expectations by making changes than it is to worry too much about what it's supposed to do, mm -hmm. in my experience. Yeah, and then if you come across a piece of code that looks a bit suspect, then you can speak to someone and say, 
you know, is this the expected behavior? And then you can have that conversation. And yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree that it's quite hard to know what it should have been doing, but you kind mm-hmm. of know what it's doing now, I guess. And as Chris said, like violating kind of users' expectations. Okay, how we can avoid legacy code? That's a good question. Uh, that runs into something else I wanted to talk about. We've talked quite a lot about, you know, what is legacy code, recognizing legacy code, strategies for dealing with legacy code. And I think a lot of the time, people don't set out to write bad code by and large. Um, I think you need to take a couple of steps back and take a more sort of systems view of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. There are many influences on a development team from outside. And it's the combinations of those influences over time that have produced, um, yeah, well, let's call it what it is, bad code. And yeah. well, we can talk about all these technical fixes for improving it. Until you fix the environment or the system that conspires to make people produce code like this, you're not actually going to get to the root cause of the problem. To a certain extent, you're trying to um, hold, keep the tide out. Yeah. If, if, the, if the process in place or the culture in place encourages, one way or the other, people to write legacy code, no amount of doing the right thing as an individual contributor is going to right the ship. You have to take a wider look at the culture and the processes and try and figure out why that's happening. And that's actually quite a big, complicated problem. I mean, we could speculate all kinds of things. I mean, there's um, developer training, ability, time pressure is a big one. In my experience, people being put, being expected to do too much with too little time. Yeah. Um, when they either don't have the particular skills they need in a given scenario or they're not confident enough in them to do anything other than try and bash something out as fast as they can. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think as well, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely the case that if, if you've got someone from the business um, that's asking for fe- feature after feature, and if they have a very short-term view of, you know, oh, you don't need to test that, I'll tell you whether it's done, you know, then maybe the developers don't write test or whatever, and there's all this pressure, then in the long term it might not be maintainable and they've just kind of hacked something together, you know, because they had the pressure and they had to deliver and so I guess yeah there's all these factors that weigh into the thing that I guess you would find as someone coming you know maybe a couple of years later or maybe not even that long in some cases it could have just be like a few months later and then you look at the code and then you see it and you may think ah oh, like these were cowboys well what are they doing and actually they could have genuinely wanted to do a good job but they were being paid by someone that wanted X and so therefore they had to do X so yeah so yeah the culture of the company I think it plays a big role. So if the company just are pushing for more features and having like the minimal deadlines so they can push more and more from the developers, I think you might end up with some legacy code. If if you try to strive for a culture where the people working at the company cares about the software and about how they're going to approach the problems that they, it's coming to them and try to learn more and keep improving the process in general. You can avoid this legacy code at a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you were... I was going to, to ask, is there any way that we can educate people that are not technical about this? That's kind of ties in with what I was going to say because I think in a lot of situations where I've seen this kind of thing happen, particularly it's gone really bad, you've got 10 15 years or a large project that's gone very badly off the rails. The, mm-hmm. A common thing is sometimes a, an absence of technical leadership. And I think it's that technical leadership's job to explain to non-technical people why caring about good design, clean code and all this stuff is important. And it comes back for me to the sort of XP principle of a s- sustainable pace. 
that's quite often mentioned in the terms of 40-hour weeks, no overtime, don't burn, burn people out. But I also like to look at it in the sense you need to be able to work at a pace that you can stay, sustain over time and deliver the same amount of value over time. If you start being able to ship, you know, let's say £10 worth of value a week and then a year later you can only do £1 every two weeks, you're not helping. You're, you're essentially vandalising your own intellectual property. And I think explaining that or articulating that to non-technical people is, is a technical leadership role. And a lot, like I said, a lot of places where you see these kind of problems, I also see an absence of, well, either a complete absence of technical leadership or an absence of competent technical leadership. I think what you mentioned is interesting there about kind of, yeah, someone may, someone's going to obviously be paying the bills and then they may want something in the next three months because they want... They For want perfectly to, reasonable reasons. They don't want to beat the market. Like they, they might need to get something out there and so therefore the code may be of a certain quality and whatever because they just needed it to work or whatever or meet a deadline. And then it's the case of, well, at some point, you know, they're going to have to think, well, we want to make changes as quickly as we were in the beginning, but because we've done it this way, maybe we can't. But then for some companies, maybe they get to the point where they can get away with it. And, you know, I'm yeah, sure there's, there's, there's many companies that have done that. I was thinking right now, one clear case in which speed is the main factor, the crypto market, which is startups, mm. where it is, they just don't care about legacy code because it's... No, because it, it's difficult to have the argument with someone like a... A stereotypical business person. I know we kind of throw that around. It's kind of a stereotype. But if you say, well, you know, in nine months' time, twelve months' time, you're going to have trouble adding features at the same kind of rate, and they say, well, you know, if we don't get this out the door, there isn't going to be a business in three months' time. Yeah, it's not the same. When I was talking about technical leadership, I don't think it's the case that everything should be perfect all the time, and it's the technical leadership's job to defend that. I think there is give and take about the, the acceptable quality for what you need to produce. Yeah. The, when I was talking about being an absence of technical leadership, there's no give and take. It's all in one direction. There needs to be a, a sensible compromise between those two things. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the lack of leadership, technical leadership is what leads it to be an entirely one-way direction until, like I said, you get to the point where you've, you've damaged the, um, an important part of your business without really realising it. Because it isn't solely a, you know, the non-technical people's job to understand all this stuff. Yeah. I, th- I think as well it's, it's kind of the, the developer's kind of responsibility to kind of you know, to advertise, we're making a compromise here. Yeah. And just so people are all aware of the decision they're making, you know, we're doing X. Ideally, we would want to do Y, but we're doing X because of yada, 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 you know, and I think, yeah, you should communicate to the stakeholders that why you're doing it and just, and just give them all the options as well, because ultimately it's their decision. They're going to be, well, if I do this, I won't meet the deadline in two months or, you know, whatever. So Yeah, something that I think that is hard to show to, to the business part is the cost that uh, technical debt has in the company. So you're say, saying to someone non-technical that it might get slower to add a feature, and they might not uh, have in mind how slow will be or how that will affect the company. And I think it's a bit hard, but if you, if you can measure that, like, if we keep in the space in, I don't know, six months, will cost more to add a feature because we will have to pay more developers to work on the same amount of, uh, of like to add the same amount of features because it's harder and we need more testing and they have to deal with manual testing because they can't refactor to add more tests. 
you have to be able to quantify these things, otherwise mm-hmm. people aren't able to make sensible decisions. You can't sort of just sort of produce vague, you know, woolly threats of a, a future where things don't go well. That it needs to be quantified in some fashion. I'm thinking of a, a particular instance where um, we had a development team that, because of the existing level of technical debt across the um, the suite of products, I guess, roughly one day per week per developer was spent just keeping the, everything running. So effectively they were losing 20% of their potential capacity to develop new features on just everybody, on all the, the cruft and the, the maintenance that goes with just keeping a big, complicated, badly built system running. And that, that's the kind of thing you can say, well look, effectively, you, you're paying for five days a week of new features, but you're actually getting four because everybody has to spend one day a week just keeping things going. Yeah, I think I think it's really it's really an awkward one because it's no like, one likes to hear this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I and I, I think I used this example earlier, but like if I went into a restaurant and I'm kind of a, a paying customer and I say you know I want to order this item off the menu, and the chef's like ah well you can have to wait you know a couple of hours I need a bit of cleaning around the kitchen. For the customer, it's going to be like, well, what? Like, Shouldn't it be clean already? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I think that is maybe I don't want to say a perfect analogy because that sounds wrong. But it's maybe a good analogy for um, like what it is from a stakeholder or the business. They're like, well, surely that you should have already be keeping this clean. And so then it's kind of a, a balance between: is it reasonable for developers to say, "Oh, can I have a day, a sprint, or can I have an allotted period of time cleaning?" Um, which is, I guess, is why you you kind of need to like maybe. I mean, I've seen it done where you kind of shoehorn it into stories, and it's like, oh, before I do this, then I'll just clean up the area I'm in, which, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think that can that can only deal with things up to a certain level. Yeah. At some point, things get so bad that you can't just fix them as a, a byproduct of doing your normal work. Mm. Uh, I think that's when things get out of hand. Because, like I said, that conversation isn't popular, but the follow the next part of the conversation is even less popular. It's like, because you've been doing for this for so long, you're going to have to expend an awful lot of effort for a long time. You won't see a lot of benefit for that. And in some cases, it might actually get worse for a little bit because at the moment you start breaking this stuff up, chopping it about, if... Now, maybe you're lucky and the only thing that's bad you've got is technical debt and your, you know, your deployment and your monitoring and all that other stuff is great and you can easily roll back changes. But usually these things tend to come together. So you, you're making these big dramatic changes, you're doing your best to try and control them, but you know, defects and things are going to slip out, probably at a higher rate than they were before, because people were just avoiding touching the stuff. Is there any way that we can plan how to do those fixes? Yes. Or how, or how you will try to sell it to the, to the non-technical people, how to go forward? Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to try and sell people, and it's, it's quite situational, so I, I don't have any really great all-round advice for how to do that but if you can quantify the scope of the problem and present a plan that can at least demonstrate it's getting better over a period of time probably a medium to long-term period of time with the kind of things we're talking about but still gives them most of what they're asking for in terms of new features that's probably the best you can do it's kind of sad i'm afraid (laughs) the one thing i would say that the one thing technical people tend to push for at this kind of stage where everything's really bad is like the the rewrite because that'll fix everything that Oh, <laughs> good. Got that, that hit a nerve. That's almost always, almost always the wrong thing to do. Yeah. I, I, I was with, uh, in one case, I wasn't doing the rewrite. I, I told them we shouldn't do it. We, we shouldn't do it. Yes. It's going to start moving forward the, 
the system that we have uh, right now. And uh, after a couple of years, I think it was a couple of years, so maybe one year and a half, we actually had to discard the rewrite. It was never going to get back into the into the position, and it was it wasn't a full it wasn't a full rewrite, but it touched quite a lot of quite a lot of, of the internals of the system, and yes, it, it cannot happen. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a case for breaking off bits of a, a large system and doing targeted rewrites in particular areas, but the, the idea of a complete rewrite from the ground up of any system is 99 times out of 100 the wrong thing to do. I understand why developers like to propose it, because on a day-to-day basis, they're working in something they hate, and a rewrite is all, it's all new technology, it's all new greenfield development, it's all a lot more fun. But from a business point of view, it's, like I say, it's almost certainly the wrong thing to do. And costly and time-consuming yeah, yeah for all those reasons then yeah. it'll probably fail anyway yeah <laughs> and it's kind of in a way I, I, I don't want to misquote this but I think maybe it was Uncle Bob in Clean Architecture I think he might touch on this and then he says it's like a de- an arrogance of developers that you think that you're going to be able to do it better the second time as opposed to just working with what you've got and trying to improve it yeah that's not that's not just restricted to developers either well maybe, maybe it is but you, you'll certainly see sort of non-technical people saying a similar sort of thing not because it is true but because they hope it's true that they're in a terrible situation now and someone mentions a rewrite and we'll be able to do because we've all done it before it'll be quicker and it'll be better that's a nice thing to hope for so you you frequently find non-technical people pushing for that kind of thing as well mm. it's maybe perhaps they've been sold a kind of fake future from technical people possibly but yeah it's not just a developer thing in my experience I want to f- finish with something that we mentioned earlier, and I want to bring it back because I think it was it was important. I have seen that happening before. It, we, we're talking about what happened with the mentality of the people when they see uh, all dusters failing and they just keep failing and they don't fix them, and therefore you kind of get into the idea yeah, these feelings are fine because the world is not coming down or because and how, how you how you been on the situation before which i expect for you could you have been with <laughs> yes again but you you're kind of getting into the point of cultural change which is a very difficult thing to do but ultimately you've got to set a new expectation for what good is and what quality means um you're right people if you've got a um a system that's in, in a bad state and you know for, for whatever reason and all these things are wrong with it people tend to regress to the level of the system they're working with yeah. because it's emotionally difficult to care in an environment where it's very difficult to have an effect to come in and really try really hard and for most of that kind of stuff to fail for all these kinds of reasons that's really difficult on a person so they'll just tend to detach themselves from it I, I don't think you can blame people for that really because the, these kind of really big sort of um, technical debt-ridden legacy monoliths, so I don't want to use that word because it's not technically correct, but they're usually too big for one person or uh, even a small group of people to meaningfully affect without a big cultural mm-hmm. change. So I, I completely understand why people behave that way. Let's remind me a bit of uh, this the broken window theory. Yeah. yeah. So once, you, you, once you start leaving things being broken it just kind of it becomes a, the standard the default yeah and then slightly bigger things can be broken but yeah it's all alright uh, yeah you're right it, they are very similar but like I say that's a very difficult mindset to break I think I think if you're an individual in the team that 
say say they don't care that the build's broken or whatever, then I think you can try and make a difference. But I think as we spoke about earlier, as an individual, it's going to be hard. But you can try and question the team and say, oh, so who's going to fix that? You know, is anyone going to look into the fact that the build's broken? You know, well, why are we continuing with this feature when the build like? You can try and go so far. Mm-hmm. But as Chris kind of already said, you know, cultural changes. A good thing to look for is people who sort of joke about it. When people, when you see a team joking about how bad everything is, that's a coping mechanism. They all know it's yeah. terrible, and the only way they have to joke about it, the only way they have to deal with it, is joke about how bad things are. That's always a thing to watch for. At least then you know people realise what the situation is. Again, fixing it is hard, but yeah. Yes, I used to work in a place that was like that. And it was really hard because when someone showed up with a new idea or trying to propose something that could help a bit the company, there would be a lot of the seniors uh, that would shut down their ideas because or maybe they were not senior enough or they didn't like the idea because they would have to learn something new or to change technologies. And this kind of generated a culture in the company where everybody would to go there, just do the, the hours and try to finish what they had to do, but not improve it in any moment. So they would not try to learn more about tests or new tools. And when they had to do to deal with any kind of new tool, it was they would do like the minimum effort just to say that they are using. So uh, an example was our Docker images that would fail silently the build and would keep going for some stuff. So when you would spin up the application, some things might not work because in that version of the Docker uh, application X failed uh, to build and it's not in Docker. Or the database was missing half of the static data because someone changed the table but forgot to change the script and it wasn't inserting anymore. But every time that failed was failing silently because they would not write proper bash scripts sometimes mm-hmm. and you would have all these kinds of things happening at the same time. Okay, anything else that we want to talk about? Yes, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> there was something. Yes, it, it was just around kind of when dealing with legacy code, I think if you can kind of make marginal gains or like small steps in the right direction, you may see some code which may not be perfect in your eyes if there is such a thing as perfect code, but it's more the fact that it's better than it was. And so it could be adding a test here or there, or it could be, you know, clarifying the, better clarifying the intent of a piece of code. Mm. I think... I think often when you're presented with this big, you know, maybe, maybe, well, maybe it's not big, but like most of the time it's a big legacy code. You just, maybe people become overwhelmed and actually if you can kind of start small and you can make some changes, I think sometimes you can make a good impact rather than just thinking, oh, this is just a mess. Like where do I yeah. even start? I think if you just, if you just make a start and you do improve things bit by bit, I think that can, that can help. I mean, you may be there for a while depending on how big the, the code base is, but I think, I think that's a good way to go. 
No, I completely agree. It's important to set things on the right trend, even if that takes a long time to bear significant fruit. Okay, are we happy now? Very. <laughs> so we've solved that problem, what's next? Yeah. <laughs> no more legacy code. No more legacy code, okay. that's, that's done. Okay, thank you very much everyone. It was a thank good you. talk. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in another one. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you.